Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Smart Economy Podcast, a production of neonewstoday.com. I'm your host, Dylan Grabowski. This episode of the Smart Economy Podcast is part of the series focusing on women in blockchain. In episode two of the Women in Blockchain series, I chat with Dr. Wendy Charles, the Chief Scientific Officer at Burst IQ. Burst IQ is a platform that offers a full end-to-end blockchain enablement system with blockchain-based big data management, consent and data sharing, cognitive computing, monetization, and a global data exchange. The company seeks to break down silos that exist within the health industry and enable health data to be connected on a global scale. In this conversation, Wendy and I discuss her background in health policy and compliance, the growing rights individuals have over their health data, how technology is integrating with the health field, how COVID changed healthcare appointments, how blockchain technology improves health industry practices, the growing changes in how organizations and governments view blockchain, and much more. Just a reminder, nothing said on this podcast is a solicitation to buy or sell any tokens, that nothing should be taken as financial advice, and that the host or guests may hold tokens discussed in any given episode. With that said, I really enjoyed chatting with Dr. Charles, and I hope you enjoy the conversation. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Smart Economy Podcast. Today, we are joined by Dr. Wendy Charles. She serves in a variety of roles, including on the Health Information and Management System Society Blockchain Task Force, the EU Blockchain Observatory and Forum Expert Panel, the Government Blockchain Association Healthcare Group, the co-chair of the IEEE Standardization Committee subgroup for blockchain in life sciences research, has served at the policy helm for various large hospitals, and Dr. Charles also serves as an assistant editor for Frontiers in Blockchain and as a peer reviewer for blockchain articles in several other journals, and recently taught a course at the University of Colorado, Denver. How are you doing today, Wendy? I am doing well. Thank you very much for inviting me. Yeah, it's an honor and a pleasure to have you on the podcast. We were just kind of gabbing back and forth how we hadn't seen each other since 2019. So what is just a general update for what you've been up to for the past couple of years since then? Thank you again for inviting me. I feel like I have become absolutely immersed in the blockchain space. And I feel like it's been a great opportunity for me also to be an evangelist about what blockchain is and what it isn't in the healthcare technology space. And so I have just been thrilled to be involved in lots of different committees, lots of different academic articles, lots of presentations, and in my role in helping people understand how blockchain can fit into some highly conservative, highly traditional technology ecosystems. Awesome. So let's just get a brief background and intro of who you are and eventually how you ended up in the space. You started solely focusing on the policy side of healthcare, am I correct? Well, I've been involved in clinical research for over 30 years, and I kept going back and forth between operations and compliance. So I had conducted clinical research. I'd served as a research director for a clinical research site, been involved in academic medicine, 
And then every couple of years, then I switched to the compliance side and I was an institutional review board manager twice and uh, director of research regulatory affairs. And I, I still have a mindset for compliance and the need to make sure that we do our due diligence for any technology that we implement. And so now I work full-time as Chief Scientific Officer at First IQ, which is kind of like a health information technology company that utilizes blockchain and AI among its tools in order to achieve different goals and different types of capabilities for these technologies. Awesome. So I'm just a little curious as to how compliance and policy has changed over the span of your career and maybe what are the different focal points that regulators or hospitals or institutions might have had that are different from when you started versus today? Oh my goodness. Well, I've already dated myself (laughs) and pointing out that I've been involved for 30 years. So we've definitely seen a lot of changes in 30 years, especially with the advent of newer technologies and newer capabilities that hadn't yet been invented when the regulations were first introduced. For healthcare regulations, uh, HIPAA had been the biggest introduced new technology. The first HIPAA implementation was in 1996. And then I had to oversee the next major phase of HIPAA in 2003 for including HIPAA authorizations for participation in research. And then with each subsequent component and advance of HIPAA, it's been much more agnostic to the development of different technologies. Like, for example, when the HIPAA security rule took effect in 2006, we all had to scramble with very detailed documentation and approaches to how we manage technology to be more respectful of the health information we are entrusted with. And as technology has become more sophisticated and we are entering a Web3 community and economy, then it's about making sure that we are still applying that mindset and that due diligence to newer technologies. And when it comes to the clinical research regulations, I've implemented many systems that had to comply with the data integrity regulations for the FDA and EMA, the um, European Medicines Agencies, to ensure that the technologies had not just the features that are required, but that we perform our due diligence as a company with utilizing current good manufacturing practices, that the implementation is thoroughly documented, the training is documented, there is thorough verification that the technology works exactly as intended, and then validation that we are achieving endpoints that are meaning clinically meaningful and that we can apply this information in a clinically relevant way. And so each of those regulations has evolved or the guidance documents with interpretations have evolved in order to help us better understand how to utilize newer technologies within the same framework. And so I've always applied this mindset about how can we be very thorough and responsible in implementing new technologies in these ecosystems that are very heavily regulated. And for listeners who might not be US-based or might not have taken these considerations into mind before, could you just give me a brief overview of what HIPAA is and why it's so important when it comes to medical records? Oh, so happy to explain. So HIPAA stands for the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act. And it was first introduced in order to allow people to have more portability of their health insurance 
But along the way came the responsibility for healthcare organizations to provide more protection of health information. And it's both for the concept of the information itself. And originally, we started with paper records, and that would mean restricting access to individuals who were not authorized to see. And over time, it's been increasingly used to give patients more rights about how their information can be used and shared, and as well as additional protections for things that weren't originally considered when HIPAA was first introduced, such as all of the different ways that health information is used in research, for example. And so some people in the healthcare industry had complained bitterly about HIPAA. I was there from the beginning, and they view it as a burden. But I was involved in compliance already at the time it was introduced. And I remember what it was like when medical students and fellows would just walk into the health information management department and pull patients' records off of the shelves. They were paper at the time and start going through them to see if there would be interesting participants for a research study. And there really wasn't oversight and there really weren't controls about protecting this information. And individuals, patients, would have no idea how many people would access their information. Well, at least now we have better restrictions, better documentation, better audit trails, so that we can ensure that information is truly private and that patients can trust the healthcare organization that they are protecting the records as individuals would expect. So... My health records at like Denver Health right now, maybe 30 years ago, somebody who was studying could just go in and open them up and see, oh, this patient came in for a knee surgery and they took this medication. Maybe they can be part of a trial. But today, my information is more protected and I would have to sign off on that. It's actually more complicated than that (laughs) because for research studies on health information, If the information is identifiable, you would first need to go through an institutional review board to get permission to do the research. Because even though you may not have contact with individuals, there are still risks to those individuals about loss of confidentiality. And there's a second component about utilization of health information. And so that's where a privacy board, and it could be an institutional review board acting as a privacy board, can issue what's referred to as a waiver of HIPAA authorization to allow use of those health records for research, but under very tightly controlled circumstances and where the researcher must deploy very stringent protections for that information in order to use it for research. So the majority of research done at Denver Health and many other academic medical centers is this type of retrospective chart review. But the benefit now is that with electronic records, we have better mechanisms for tracking and protecting this information. And we also have to give patients an accounting of their, it's called accounting of disclosures, if we would have to share that information with individuals who are not members of that workforce. So it can be done, but there's just more respect in many ways for the individuals represented in those records. So beyond the digitization of records and the increasing security over them that you know patients could assume that their healthcare providers were not sharing that information, what are some other interesting ways you've seen technology integrate into the healthcare field either from like the hospital level or from the compliance policy sort of level? 
Oh, great question. I'm going to focus on two areas. So the first is I'm really excited by what we're seeing in digital health technologies. And that's kind of a a family of technologies that's utilized to, uh, can be from sensors that people can wear at home. It can be from wearables. It can be from remote devices in order to track people where they live and work and to uh, enable them to have better healthcare oversight while not needing to provide all of that oversight in a medical setting. So I'm very encouraged that we can also use this to better understand how medications are working in clinical research. For example, if we take a heart medication, for example, previously the clinical research focused on what were referred to as surrogate endpoints, such as a reduction in cholesterol, for example, or heart rate, or something that was measurable, but it was difficult to infer how much that was clinically meaningful. But now that we have digital health technologies where we can track uh, someone's movements, say GPS, to say, yes, if they're taking this medication, they have more steps. They can go further from their home. They can participate in more activity and still be monitored and still be safe. And and those are the things that are meaningful. Like patients don't care if their cholesterol level changes a few degrees. They care about whether they can attend their grandchild's birthday party. So digital health technologies enable us to capture things that can be inferred to be much more clinically meaningful and enable their quality of life. So uh, the other thing that I find very encouraging, especially when we utilize blockchain in healthcare, is that we can utilize technology to give patients more control and more insight as to how their information is being used and shared. And for that, we use consent contracts to enable very granular and dynamic forms of consent. And I'm very encouraged that We now have the technology to enable a more ethical approach to how we interact with individuals and how we use or share or enable them to use and share their information. And previously, I'd always said, oh, yeah, but, you know, in healthcare, it's always been this way or in clinical research, it's always been this way with repositories or future unspecified uses of their data or specimens. But now it's really important for all of us in the technology ecosystem to ask the question, what if? What if we could utilize our technology in a different way to be more respectful of the individuals that we serve, to give them more choices, to give them more options, to give them more insight into their own information? And my hope is that we can further empower people to become involved in their own healthcare their own research participation, and better consumers as patients. And so that is an evolution, too, that I'm very encouraged about. And I hope that many healthcare research organizations continue to evolve with this mindset that, yes, we are capable of doing things differently than we had before, and we can extend this technology to a more ethical degree than we had. This is sort of on topic, but it's something that I hadn't planned on discussing. Do you envision a world in the future where we're going less and less to physical doctor appointments and we're doing more telehealth and maybe there are less urgent care facilities and less hospitals, but more specific structures for things like surgeries or things of that nature, and you're removing the general care from the physical element? 
That's a great question. And the answer is both yes and no. So yes, in the sense that COVID really changed the way we think about delivering healthcare. And we realized that there are many chronic conditions that can be treated very effectively with telehealth, using video conferencing with patients, Also, telepsychiatry, telepsychology have become very popular, and we realized that for many conditions, you can talk through and determine the best form of care. I am also, along those lines, encouraged that surgical capabilities are also improving through remote care in that there are more robotic devices that are utilized for surgery, as well as the capability for a surgeon to consult in real time with surgeons in, say, a remote area that may not have that same level of expertise. So we are seeing more advances, and I was thrilled to see a lessening of requirements from the insurance companies, as well as from licensing, state board licensing, to allow more expansion of telehealth. The areas where we may not see as much is that there's still a physical examination component for certain types of diseases. And so there's only one way for a physician to examine an infection, for example, and you really need to be seen in person or by a trained clinician who can recognize the symptoms. And also, I do believe there's a lot to be said for the interpersonal connections that we have in healthcare and that individuals develop relationships with their healthcare providers. And it's meaningful to sit there in person and to to feel cared for in addition to having your medical needs met. And so I don't think that telehealth will ever completely replace medicine, but I'm encouraged that there are better mechanisms for allowing for certain conditions to be treated effectively with telehealth and that We're even conducting clinical research more effectively with more remote monitoring and more remote care. But um, yeah, I don't know that we'll ever replace the human element. Well, I guess maybe to add on to that, not necessarily saying there are going to be robots that deal with people, but are we also potentially going to see a shift towards maybe technicians or physicians going to make house visits as opposed to clients or patients coming to them? with the advent of telehealth and all these other tele-services you were just describing? I don't know the full trend or scope, but I do know that there are some boutique medical practices that have arisen, especially during COVID, when people were quarantined, they still needed healthcare. And so there are some care providers who do provide home visits. It's often nurses or physician's assistants in order to give that personalized care to individuals who can't travel. So I don't know the full scope, but this is available. Awesome. We spoke earlier about the advances in technology as you've progressed in your career. And then in 2009, this anonymous guy or girl or group (laughs) of people creates Bitcoin. And nine years later, Dr. Charles is looking at completely moving to a new sector of the healthcare field. So what was it about blockchain and how blockchain can empower or improve medical technologies or the med tech space? What was it about blockchain that really clicked for you when it clicked for you? I had always been involved in health information technology. In fact, that's the area for my PhD. I specialize in health information technology. 
And in 2017, I attended a conference for pharmaceutical executives, even though I wasn't. And each of the speakers talked about blockchain revolutionizing the clinical trial space. And I said, I have to learn about this technology. (laughs) And so I started reading what I could find, but it was early. 2017 was still at the beginning of blockchain for healthcare. And most of what was described was theory. And so I started volunteering at different community groups and uh, attending conferences, attending Zoom sessions. I volunteered for many different programs and I started to to really understand where blockchain had potential and where there were still drawbacks and blockchain isn't necessarily the good fit. And the more I became involved, I just became obsessed (laughs) with learning about (laughs) blockchain capabilities. I think I enjoyed that it was cutting edge. I think I enjoyed the fact that this was a technology that was new and was making such an impact in so many industries already by that point in 2017. It wasn't just crypto. It was an underlying technology used for supply chain and for for managing different forms of exchanges. And so I felt very encouraged that this technology could be applied effectively in healthcare as long as we treated it like a health information technology. And so what I am particularly motivated by today is that we are seeing a lot of progress and development in that governments are much more receptive and interested in how blockchain can be utilized and that organizations are starting to learn about how blockchain technology must also apply to the regulations that are technology agnostic. And this will become then a component of an ecosystem. It may be helpful for our listeners too, for me to point out that blockchain isn't any one thing. It's a set of tools and technologies that are applied in many different ways and aspects throughout different industries. And that organizations utilize the components that are the best fit with similar features across different industries. So yes, in in healthcare and life sciences, we largely utilize private permission blockchains just due to the confidentiality requirements in the regulations, but it has potential for allowing us to manage data very differently than we had before, much more efficiently and effectively, and, and introduce some new capabilities as well. Mm-hmm. And some of those capabilities might be things like um, introducing identity solutions for patients. Something I wanted to pull your ear on is how has the pharmaceutical supply chain or any other supply chain been positively impacted by the implementation of these consortia or private chains? That's a great question. So there are currently two major pilots being conducted in the United States with the active participation of the FDA to utilize blockchain as a mechanism of allowing organizations to more effectively meet the Drug Supply Chain Security Act. So that takes effect next year in 2023. And because blockchain has such a wonderful underlying technology for managing provenance, it's really an an ideal underlying solution underneath the application layers to allow the right level of permissioned transparency, as well as tracking of the provenance. So I'm very encouraged that blockchain is an effective solution for the drug supply chain We have been seeing lots of capabilities with other aspects of the supply chain as well in other industries. 
it's my understanding, although I can't confirm this, that the New York Shipping Exchange had been using blockchain since 2016. We are moving past pilots into full implementations. And I'm very encouraged that the FDA has been so actively involved. It just kind of gives its blessing for organizations who are conservative and were uncertain about whether the FDA would accept this technology. And they are not just accepting, but they are active participants in its progress. Mm -hmm. And I guess uh, to play devil's advocate, could you maybe help me understand why a permissioned chain might serve a better feature than, say, a database that everybody can equally access that's provided through a single company? You know, that question comes up in almost every conference I've been at, every presentation. So many people say, oh, well, I can just hard code that. Well, yes, you could. But when you utilize the tools of blockchain, you can often achieve your desired purpose in one-third the time and one-third the cost. So why wouldn't you? We utilize blockchain in those areas where you need to have specific managed control of information and allow individuals or organizations to have layers of automation and layers of governance. And when we talk about individual patients, this comes under the components of dynamic and granular consent of giving patients more access and control of their information. You could hard code all of those capabilities, but since blockchain has inherent features that allow, when when we utilize the smart contracts as like consent contracts, it allows for the automation of the permissioning all the way down in a much more efficient way than could be hard coded. So I just point out, yes, you could, blockchain is software, not magic. (laughs) You could... (laughs) Utilize the software in many different ways. But if you had a tool that allowed you to go to market sooner, that allowed you to be much more efficient with precious resources, why wouldn't you? Would you say that these blockchain networks, the private permission networks, are removing redundancy from different entities that need to communicate with one another as opposed to having maybe two uh, executive assistants having to pass off paperwork to a doctor or somebody to sign off. Now you can have this consent contract that automatically does that on behalf of these entities. Yes, that's one component. I I think another component that's worthwhile to mention is the concept of trust. And in healthcare, the underlying electronic health records have an audit trail. In clinical trials, the data integrity components require there to be a detailed audit trail. But there were many facets of healthcare, such as sharing, automation, that were not traceable. And we didn't have confidence about how the information was being managed. But when you utilize blockchain as an an underlying technology for some of that data sharing, you have transparency in who has access to your records, how it was shared. And because the technology includes that inherently, it doesn't require a lot of extra programming in order for you to have those benefits. And so, like, for example, the country of Estonia has a single-payer healthcare system, and they added a layer blockchain on top of their healthcare system in 2016. But the large part for the purpose was to better track access for access to individuals' health records within the healthcare system and for authorized individuals who were given permission by patients to access 
their health records and advocate on their behalf. And so it was uh, just a much more effective way of being able to track, both allow permissions and access uh, who has utilized those permissions so that an individual can better trust um, how their information is used and protected. Mm-hmm. This is kind of a difficult premise to kind of dig into, but along with these permission chains and the ability for me as a patient to be able to grant access to somebody who wants to study my records or even to share the data, what about a complementary data storage service where I know my medical records can be uploaded to something equivalent to IPFS or something like that. And I don't now have to go to Denver Health to get a physical copy of my records to go to another provider that's within within my network. Is this also something that's being thought about, built? Is it already built? What are kind of the data storage solutions to this problem? That is a fantastic question. And with a couple of different promising areas for growth and improvement. The first is, is largely what you're talking about. The technical term for it is a personal health record. And that's where an individual can manage and store their own health record and share it as they desire. So they might download their health record from multiple providers and then they manage it themselves in one place. It's often done in a traditional database system, but we are increasingly, I mean, Burst IQ is actively participating with some of our partners at creating these personal health record systems that allow for much more transmissibility, much more access and granular sharing with some of those key components of blockchain for the trust. So another thing that's promising is that since Uh, The United States government has required that patients have much more access to their health information than previous. And we're also seeing under TEFCA, there are requirements to establish health information exchange and qualified health networks that are required to exchange health information and allow it to be shared much more effectively. Well, blockchain is really an ideal underlying technology for many of those exchanges so that it can automate some of the data flow and also manage with the appropriate audit trails some of the access to that information. So some people say, well, wait a minute, with blockchain, how do you manage patient keys? You know, do do they have to manage private keys and public keys and how do they share those? That is too difficult for many patients to be able to do. Lord knows they can't even remember usernames and passwords, and we all have too many of those to begin with. So it is possible to tie those public and private keys with a built-in, a hidden hot wallet. For those in the blockchain community are familiar with this, but it's kind of like um, a private online wallet where you can store the private and public keys and you associate them with the username and password. So that an individual can still log into a website with a username and password. They just don't know that they're interacting with the blockchain. And the blockchain, the smart contracts associate their private and public keys with their whatever login information. And we also establish single sign-on capabilities for patients. So that if they log into the patient portal for an electronic health record system, that single sign-on in that health record system can also grant permission for them to access some information that's managed by the blockchain. So they still have to authenticate 
as an individual using their sign-on with their healthcare system, which is permitted under HIPAA. We just make it easy for individuals to also access blockchain features. And I can hardly think of any situation where patients actually know that they're interacting with the blockchain. It doesn't matter. It's just that the blockchain is part of the technology ecosystem and allows the technology to work more effectively. I've been saying for years that by the time blockchain is mainstream, quote unquote, people will not even know they're using it. Just like I can't tell you what TCP IP is and why it powers the internet we use. (laughs) Agreed. I am wondering if there were any sort of like perverse incentives for medical providers to silo this information and what those might have been. Well, I don't know about healthcare providers because HIPAA requires them and state statutes also require providers to provide specific protections for health information and levels of access to patients and their authorized, their legally authorized representatives. Where we see siloing, however, and you are very correct in pointing out that there are some perverse incentives for research organizations not to share data. The NIH has been, the National Institutes of Health in the United States, has been requiring researchers to make data available that had been collected using American taxpayer dollars under U.S. grants. And while they were required to create a data, it's called a data management plan, where they would have to also describe the circumstances of removing identifiers and providing data sets when requested. It's difficult to get researchers to want to share their data with others, especially when researchers may have spent years collecting and managing that data. And so I am hopeful that when blockchain can better protect identifiers, we we see promising tokenization and we see better collaboration methods using blockchain, that it will allow researchers to share their data more freely while still knowing that it's protected and that they have insights to how the data are being used by other researchers. So in public blockchain networks, there's often an economic layer that's baked into the tech stack. And from my vague understanding for permissioned networks, this is more for enterprise entities to be able to share some sort of distributed database, but also An issue with that comes keeping information protected. You don't want your competitor to know how much you spent on X amount of products. So as you've mentioned, a lot of these medical solutions rely on permissioned chains. Is there a world where this economic incentive is starting to be incorporated into permission chains so that these entities can maybe even rent out or sell this information? I believe so. So, you know, the private permission chains are less likely to be based on a blockchain involving cryptocurrency. So there are some like private Ethereum, enterprise Ethereum, but the cryptocurrency doesn't drive the transactions and the shared management of the chain in the same way as many of the public blockchains do. So when introducing monetization, we're often associating the utilization of data with a different financial mechanism where individuals can be monetized for sharing their information. So some of the organizations like research repositories that are established on the blockchain, genetic repositories, either have their own coin that individuals can earn when 
sharing their data, or it can be associated with a fiat currency, such as giving a person a credit card and then information is loaded, but using external providers to load that monetization. And there is one company, one blockchain marketplace that gives people shares of the company in order to share their data. And so we're seeing creative mechanisms by which data can be monetized and going back to individuals. And it required, each of them requires a lot of thoughtful planning about whether it's a security or a utility token or what kind of tracking is necessary because these are known individuals. and. In order to pay it, the known individual, you also have tax implications. And so there there has to be a KYC or know your customer mechanism for some of these health-related blockchains. It's possible some of your audience members might disagree with me on components. I welcome different ideas about how we could still utilize enough of the data linking and data sharing capabilities and still manage some of the KYC mechanisms that are required for monetization. Yeah. And with everything in the crypto blockchain space, there's a spectrum and people fall on very different ends and very different places on the spectrum of centralization versus decentralization, anonymity versus being completely known. So Burst IQ has built its own permissioned blockchain, correct, LifeGraph? Yes, and we refer to it as the LifeGraph network because our technology enables you to create a longitudinal profile of a person, place, or thing and be able to link multiple data sets so that you have this very rich knowledge graph of an individual which allows for much deeper insights for healthcare, for research, for even business insights. And the life graph is really what drives Burst IQ in order to create a blockchain that provides more sophisticated capabilities than, than many other companies offer. So can you share some examples of entities or hospitals or just the types of partners that you guys work with? Sure. I, uh, I'm happy to talk about one of our close partners. Uh, it's EHT Advisors, and they are using our life graphs in order to link services for individuals who are justice involved. And so these are people who may have been incarcerated for a period of time and are reintegrated in the community. And so they require services and assistance from many different organizations. It could be for job assistance. It could be for mental health services. It could be for community integration, such as uh, need for community housing. And all of these services really need to communicate with each other about how best to address the needs of an individual. And so by utilizing a life graph, all of that information can be linked while still protected and using the granular consent, the individual also has much more control over how to share that, that information. So you can develop very deep insights when you can connect multiple sources of health and vocational information in order to best serve an individual. And who might want access to that information, like state government entities like DOLA, other mental health service facilities? Uh, what are some examples of the types of entities that want to access that on behalf of the individual? Definitely healthcare organizations. 
And for those who require additional services for substance abuse or mental health services would need to know while that individual is being reintegrated. I am not familiar with all of the different programs that would also need to access that information. But the reason I ask is when I was in grad school, we studied this service called Housing First. Basically, it's you provide a house first and then everything else will fall in line. So the criteria for entering into this program was you had to be chronically homeless and a chronic alcoholic. And so the theory was, was these are the segments of of the population that are probably going to prisons or jails most often. They're probably going to the hospital and there's a lot of taxpayer dollars that they're spending. So if we provide a house first, then everything else will fall in line. So part of those services included uh, matching housing, finding jobs, connecting mental health services, physical health services. So I was just curious if you have various different alphabet soups of governments that are trying to connect with LifeGraph? Governments, yes. Um, And I'll talk about some other particular projects other than the great work that's being done with justice-involved individuals. So where governments are really interested in is how best to manage the collection and distribution of health information on a population level. And so, for example, in the United States, the Department of Health and Human Services took over the COVID reporting collection and aggregation analysis process from the Centers for Disease Control, in part because the information is managed on a blockchain. And the blockchain itself was very effective in understanding where the discrepancies, potential discrepancies may have arisen. And because there was an inherent audit trail, they could determine if one community organization or one hospital had double reported on accident, for example, or had gaps in reporting, and then there was a jump that could be explained by aggregate reporting. So at a population level, it's a very effective mechanism of utilizing privacy-preserving strategies for the health information, while also managing permissions at a very granular level. And yes, you could do that with a database too, but it's just much more efficient when utilizing some blockchain tools to be able to do that. I am encouraged too, the state of Wyoming has really been a pioneer at managing more government programs for voting, for land records. In the state of Colorado, we have definitely been trying to be among the thought leaders in how best to advance. I am encouraged that in 2018, our state passed a statute that provided funds to educate students about blockchain in the Colorado universities and also to encourage the different departments around, I guess, county level departments, something like that, around the state to investigate use of blockchain technologies in order to improve some efficiencies. Yeah, I worked uh, for Jefferson County as a planner, zoning and planning, and there was zero communication with the 63 other counties. And we were not able to share what worked, what didn't, what overlaps. There wasn't even a cohesive database from county to county as it pertained to keeping records for homeowners and the permits they may or may not have applied for. So it's always uh, refreshing to hear that there's some positive movement towards creating a cohesion among county-level governments. Cognizant of your time, I 
want to wrap up with a little bit of a conversation just surrounding uh, the concept of women in blockchain. I have this theory that because there is this anonymous and pseudonymous element to the blockchain space, that maybe more people of all different types are empowered to participate because it's their proof of work on a GitHub that everybody sees. So I'm just wondering from your perspective, are you seeing a different level of involvement from the women in the blockchain industry versus other policy or healthcare industries that you've been a part of throughout your career? And if there is or isn't any noticeable difference? I can only speak anecdotally. Anecdotally, yes. <laughs> so so uh, my personal experience is that I was often the only woman in many community forums, and I was still thrilled to be there because I felt like I had a voice about how, you know, each of us brings a different background, a different perspective into the blockchain space. It's very, very diverse, and that... Each of our voices is important and valuable for advancing blockchain in our industries. When blockchain first started, it started as cryptocurrency, and so it was definitely much more male-dominated. But as the industries, the number of industries utilizing blockchain has expanded, we're seeing much more representation of the people involved in technologies in those industries. And for healthcare, it's still a male dominated area. However, there have been wonderful programs to integrate women in health information technology and to provide much more effective training and understanding about what blockchain is and how it can serve the industries. I I am thrilled personally. I serve as an adjunct professor to the University of Colorado Denver in the health administration department. And I teach Introduction to Health Information Technology. There are a lot of women who participate in the program, and I get to teach about blockchain as a technology that they really do need to learn about as part of health information technology and have a realistic understandings of what blockchain can and cannot do. I'm also thrilled to report in the state of Colorado that the Department of Higher Education has been actively involved in understanding what are the needs of the workforce. And since the Chamber of Digital Commerce had released a report that in 2019, knowledge of blockchain was the, the number one unmet need for the work of the employers in workforce. And that our state has taken an active role to recognize that we need to prepare the Colorado graduates for some of these critical skills involving blockchain, distributed ledger technologies, Web3 technologies. And to ensure that we have a viable local workforce to be able to meet the needs of industries in Colorado. So I I definitely see that as blockchain becomes more mainstream, we are seeing more women get involved and be confident. And so any women listening to this podcast, I would encourage you to get out there, speak your voice, because we need to hear about your background and experiences as to how to best move forward with these technologies. And what do you think the role of mentorship is in increasing the diversity for women in blockchain? And maybe what's the best way that somebody can seek a mentor? That's a great question. So in many programs, the students are paired with individuals who are active in the industry so that they can learn from those individuals. But how did they get in? You know, what was challenging? What was effective? And what 
advice would those mentors have about how best to become integrated? What coursework do you need to take? What kinds of connections or experiences do you need to make? So in a formal education setting, that's certainly available. I I would encourage those who would like to get involved in blockchain to get involved in women in blockchain uh, so that they can meet other women who are working in this space and learn about how they have been successful and empowered. Also, anyone can connect with me as well, and I'm happy to either provide some insight or connect them with other women who are very active in this space. And maybe what's the best way to learn about the women in blockchain community and what's the best way to get in contact with you? Sure. I believe the website is womeninblockchain.com. And the best way to connect with me is on LinkedIn. And you can look for me, Wendy Charles. And if you did Wendy Charles Blockchain, you would definitely know that you had found me. Awesome. Wendy, thank you so much for coming to join the Smart Economy podcast. I've been fascinated by your talks and presentations and just following you along with your journey into blockchain leveraging the skill, experience, and expertise you brought into the space. So it was awesome to finally be able to catch up with you. I can't wait to see you again in person and maybe attend one of your meetups or a Burst IQ event. It's just been great to be able to catch up with you. Thank you so much for inviting me today. Awesome. Well, have a great day and uh, thank you so much for coming on. Cheers. Well, what did you think of that conversation? It was really cool to learn about the role that sensors and mobile applications can have in improving the quality of patient information and how it's shared with health providers. For example, if a certain medication is enabling patients to move around more. It was also really interesting to hear more about how the Food and Drug Administration, a major U.S. federal agency, is spearheading blockchain-based initiatives and the positive impact that has on the adoption of the technology into conservative organizations. And it was really cool to hear that blockchain processes are improving the speed, efficiency, and cost of outdated practices of sharing health data. With that, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the Smart Economy podcast. If you liked what you heard and want to support the show, Please keep NEO News Today in mind when voting for your NEO Council representative as part of NEO's governance process. We appreciate you and look forward to catching you next time.